the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon and greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Monday edition of The Ride Home. It is Monday, January 29th. It's the snow-turned-to-rain edition Mm -hmm. of The Ride Home. I was surprised to open my eyes this morning and see all of the snow flurries. I mean, I... Then some some stuff laid mm-hmm. in my yard. I don't know if it was laying in your area. It was. Uh, it was on the car. I'm not too over, ever concerned about the snow. It's the ice yeah. that bothers me. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, the high today is only going to be 39. Mm-hmm. So a good portion, I, I would guess, of the evening is going to be less than 32. But... Uh, we are ready to spring forward. Um, are we? Soon, when yeah. are we springing forward? Um, I think within the week. Um, here's the weird thing. Do you know that uh, the first day of Lent is Valentine's Day? I did know that. Mm-hmm. So we're very close to springing forward here. Um, Lex, would you find out? I, I know it's somewhere in the ballpark of like within two weeks. Okay. I believe that's true. All, All right. right. So spring is coming. And we're right? going to lose an hour of oh, wait, sleep. Wait, wait, Lex got the, uh, the spring update? It will be Sunday, March 10th. Oh, heck's sake. Here oh. I was thinking, like I was on the cusp of something. Oh, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. You're not on the cusp of anything. Can we delete that? Sorry. <laughs> we just, no, no right. we're not, we're not <laughs> deleting it. We're just moving oh, through. We the whole other month in plus. Right. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, um, the car industry is seeking to crush AM radio. Now, that's something that we've known about for a long time. Yes. However, uh, I think some people in Congress are stepping in, and so we're going to talk about what AM radio, you know, if that's something that maybe you, is, perhaps you're listening to us right now online, mm-hmm. or you're listening to us on our app. Um, or our sister station, AM 73. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're fortunate to be uh, to be on the FM dial, but it is, AM radio is just a thing, you know, that it is essential, I think, to a lot of people who live outside of the city. That's right. So as automakers to get rid of it, right, it will be the demise of AM radio. Let's not let that happen. Also in the five o'clock hour, who is Jesus according to other world religions? Uh, we're also going to talk about the average age of marriage in each state and bullfighting. Bullfighting. Right. <laughs> That's just a little smattering of what's to come on today's <laughs> Red Home, John. That's a mixed bag of topics, mm-hmm. is it not? That's what we specialize in. All right. As we get underway, as we always do, let's uh, take a look at the news. Without further ado, here's the top four at four. As you've already said, John, that's Monday, January 29th, 2024. Today, I'd like to say happy birthday to my cousin, Rich. Hey, Rich. Happy birthday Today's to you. Mm-hmm. Number Thank one. Woohoo! After Sunday's drone attack, John, on an American military outpost in the Middle East that killed three U.S. service members and left dozens more injured, a top Biden administration official said that the U.S. will absolutely do what's necessary for its defense. But he also emphasized that staving off wider regional conflict is a priority. 
I'm reading here from CBS News uh, where they quote John Kirby, a spokesperson for the National Security Council. He said, we're not interested in a broader conflict in the region. We're not looking for another war, but we absolutely will do what we have to do to protect ourselves. Mr. Biden said in a statement issued after the attack that, quote, radical Iran-based militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq were behind it and noted that the U.S. will hold all those responsible to account at a time and manner of our choosing. Number two, the PA Supreme Court today issued a complex opinion on a case involving the funding of abortions by Medicaid, indicating that the ban prohibiting payment for abortions is presumptively unconstitutional, but sending the case back to Commonwealth Court to resolve the question. John, this is a confusing issue, so I'm not going to go into details on it, but I'm going to urge people to read the article in today's trib. Widener University constitutional law professor Quinn Yergin is quoted there, said that the state Supreme Court chose not to answer the underlying question of abortion, but cleared the way for the Commonwealth Court to do so. The court is clearly signaling that it wants the Commonwealth Court to strike down the law. The majority opinion was overturns a unanimous 1985 state Supreme Court case is important and could well be the case, a step on the way to the court recognizing that there is a right to abortion under the state constitution. Number three, a group of Japanese citizens, John, including a man of Pakistani descent, launched a civil lawsuit against the country's police today, accusing the authorities of racial profiling and discrimination and demanding an end to the alleged practice. Really? How about that? The case is going to be heard in Tokyo District Court. It comes as Japan in recent years has seen an influx of workers from abroad. Uh, One of the three plaintiffs is a 26-year-old Japanese citizen, but of Pakistani descent, and says he's been repeatedly stopped by police, including getting searched in front of his home. He's lived in Japan for two decades, but he says, quote, they don't recognize us as Japanese from the first moment they think I'm a criminal. It's very rare for Japanese immigration, right? Yeah, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes, it it does. The complaint targets the government as well as the national um, uh, prefectural police departments. The plaintiffs claim they're getting stopped for police for apparently no reason, and that violates their constitutional rights. Interesting. You can read more about that at ABC News. And number four, according to Pittsburgh Magazine, the Pittsburgher of the Year, Andrew McCutcheon. And that is your top four at four. Really? So Cutch coming back home made everybody happy enough for him to be the Pittsburgher of the Year. Now 37 years old, the Mm -hmm. second year of his return, he just inked a $5 million one-year contract for this coming season, and he says he's happy to be back in Pittsburgh, a city he fell in love with when he was in his 20s. Excellent. He said, Pittsburgh has been my second home the whole time. It's where my heart is. Very nice. I mean, he named his kids Steel. He did. Nothing and, you know, they're having another baby. Are they? Yep. They have three kids, and there's a fourth one on the way. Very, very nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, congratulations. You know what else was something interesting they talked about in the Pittsburgh Magazine article is he said that when he travels and he's in other cities, like going out for dinner, he can get mobbed by people, you really? know, who want his autograph or whatever. He said it never happens in Pittsburgh. People let him go. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. He said, it's a hardworking, blue-collar city, and people are very respectful of your time. (laughs) Isn't that good? Very nice. He also said, and I wondered about this, he has zero interest in joining the Pirates coaching staff when he's done. Huh. He said, it's way too stressful. He also does not want to be an announcer. He said he wants to be present for his kids and around for their t-ball games. Maybe he'll be a youth coach. But he said, one thing for sure, when I'm done, I'm not going anywhere else. This is it. 
Excellent. Andrew McCutcheon, happy to have him as a bucko. And a Pittsburgher of the year. All right, so it bodes well that we're talking baseball at the end of January. We'll take a quick break and come back as we always do. Well, almost always we do. We go to the White House next. Greg Clarkson joins us from SRN News. We're, t- we're Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home. The radio is 101.5 Word FM, WORD. It's Monday, and so that means Greg Clarkson joins us, SRN News White House correspondent. Greg, happy Monday to you. And a happy Monday to you. Hi there, John and Kathy. Good to be here. Thank you, Greg, always. Good to have you, Greg. So uh, yesterday there was big news, drone attack on an American military outpost in the Middle East, Um, the death of three U.S. service members. Talk about the response, Greg, of the White House. Yeah, very sad incident here, and we're learning a little bit more even just today, the last few hours, about what happened and why the enemy drone, which was flying in at a low altitude, this was taking place uh, at an American installation in Jordan near the Syrian border, and the, the U- there was no effort by the U.S. to shoot the enemy drone down. And what we're learning from military officials is that there was an American drone that was also in the air at the same time returning to that very base uh, early in the morning, and because they uh, apparently mistaken it for uh, an American drone that was coming in, it was the it was the enemy drone that came in. So there was wow. no response. Uh, so you have the three service members killed, and dozens were injured in that attack. A lot of them were were asleep in their bunks mm-hmm. at that military installation. So the response from the White House, which we heard from the president yesterday. Um, He obviously was not only condemning the attack on American troops, but also mourning the the loss of life and uh, those that were injured. And then also saying that the U.S. is going to retaliate. He said America shall respond. In fact, this morning here at the White House in the Situation Room, the president was meeting with his national security team, including the Pentagon chief, the director of national intelligence and other advisors, as they are discussing what that response, what that military uh, retaliation would look like. And because these um, these Iran, you know, Iran backed militias are. Uh, likely at fault here, there is a growing chorus from some members of Congress, including members of the Republican Party, to go hard after uh, Iranian forces. Uh, so we'll have to simply see, uh, wait and see what the response from the U.S. and the commander in chief will be here. Mm. Sad, but fascinating as well to consider that where we are here uh, is a drone war, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of response? I mean, it's it's really interesting and frightening as well to think an escalation of a war in the Middle East, Greg. It is. And this is something that the, the White House, the Biden administration has been saying they don't want they don't want a widening conflict in the Middle East. Of course, all of this has been taking place uh, against the backdrop of the ongoing Israel-Hamas war ever since that October 7th attack by Hamas. And so uh, since then, you've had Israeli forces pounding uh, Gaza uh, in an effort to uh, to wipe out Hamas. And then you've had these uh, Iranian-backed Houthi rebels uh, out of Yemen in particular that have been going on for weeks now in attacking uh, ships and other vessels uh, that are transporting goods and and things in the in the Red Sea, and this has been an ongoing problem not just for the United States, uh, but for a number of countries. 
uh, many of whom are U.S. allies and have warned uh, these Houthi rebels that there's going to be a response. In fact, there has been uh, a military response, a U.S. and British-led military action taken over the last couple of weeks. But you've got a lot of GOP members in the House in particular, or, uh, on, on Capitol Hill in both the House and Senate, who are calling for a much stronger response from the U.S. military. Donald Trump also weighing in and essentially calling Joe Biden a weak leader when it comes to his global foreign policy. Boy, this is a tense time to have a presidential election, isn't it? It is because not you're right. Just just dealing with this matter outside of the context of a presidential campaign is is complicated and dangerous enough. But you add the politics of a presidential campaign, uh, which which could make matters worse, you know, to be honest, in terms of what the uh, what the motivations are for taking certain positions or not taking certain positions or not following through with certain uh, you know, possible decisions from a military perspective here at the White House. Uh, it is. It, it could be a very troubling time. It already is in many senses. Yes. Well, speaking of uh, presidential politics and former President Trump, we've not spoken to you since last week's defamation judgment against President Trump. Please talk to us about this, Greg. Sure. So you had at the E. Jean Carroll uh, trial, and she was this advice columnist who had leveled uh, defamation charges against Donald Trump, as well as sexual assault charges. And uh, this latest defamation judgment from the jury last week was uh, $83 million plus. Uh, So that was in addition to a a $5 million uh, jury award back last May. So the, the president has been ordered to pay more than $88 million in in damages here and uh, a lot of it has to do with the public statements that Donald Trump has made he has uh, he has ridiculed and berated and denied and accused Eugene Carroll of, of falsehoods and making up the story the jurors uh, in two different trials essentially uh, agreed with her and so uh, this is something that obviously the the Trump um, uh, team and the former president himself have said that they are going to appeal so it's not over yet in that sense because that process will continue. What's interesting then is looking at this, especially like we were just saying, we're in the midst of a presidential campaign now. These uh, these legal uh, issues and indictments facing the former president have not hurt him politically so far. But you have to wonder, even if uh, you know you've got some of his hardcore. Uh, supporters who are dismissing this uh, as, you know, a New York jury going after, you know, a liberal New York jury going after uh, the president or even uh, possibly, you know, the Justice Department being involved in some way. Uh, you you do wonder what the response will be from, for example, women voters and suburban uh, voters who, who look at this and are concerned about charges of a sexual assault, charges of uh, going after someone's character and defamation. Uh, those are issues that a lot of voters do look at when they're considering a presidential choice. And so you wonder if there may be some fallout from this down the road that we haven't seen yet for Trump, but he continues to obviously be the strong front runner and hasn't suffered uh, very much politically so far. Not to mention, Greg, and you alluded to this, but part of the reason that judgment was as high as it was is his behavior in the courtroom was so appalling. It was just childish and it was self-defeating. I mean, he he acted so poorly, uh, didn't listen to the judge, you know, was uh, outright obstinate. And so he ends up with, you know, this, you know, incredible penalty. And I wonder what if I mean, maybe that doesn't mean anything to the supporters who've been with him since 2016. But I don't know. I wonder. 
Yeah, that's a good point, Kathy. And you're right. The behavior was less than presidential, let alone just sort of the normal uh, expected, you know, adult human behavior that you would have in a courtroom, respect being shown for the court and the officials in the courtroom. Uh, but yes, there were uh, you know outbursts not only by the former president, but uh, also uh, some of his lawyers, some of his uh, the attorneys there uh, were also uh, ignoring or going against the judge in certain orders and all the rest. He got up last week and left the courtroom right in the middle of a presentation ahead of that jury announcement last week. So uh, we have seen that, and, and it's interesting. We also saw him following the New Hampshire primary when uh, it became clear that Nikki Haley was not getting out of the race right away. Uh, it, he sort of became unglued um, in his speech that evening, New Hampshire. He went after uh, the clothes that Nikki Haley was wearing and was calling her delusional and really attacking her character that way. And uh, you wonder almost if that's part of the Nikki Haley campaign strategy to stay in the race to see if uh, she can continue to get under his skin. But certainly these legal issues, uh, they may he may put on a bold face publicly, but you wonder what kind of toll it's taking to on him personally. We're speaking with Greg Clugston, who is the SRN News White House correspondent. Greg, uh, let's talk about immigration. Of course, it's always been a hot-button issue, heating up even more so as open borders continue. The Republicans, though, are divided in their response. Please talk to us about this. So you have uh, someone like Congressman, or excuse me, Senator uh, James Langford. Uh, he is a Republican, and he has been one of the key negotiators, along with an independent and with a Democrat, as lead negotiators talking about and trying to form some sort of consensus bipartisan immigration plan that would really address in a better way than we currently have in terms of policy and law the, the border crisis at the southern border with Mexico. And so as these talks have, have come along, there's there's been a discussion about, you know, whether or not they would pass, the, whether this kind of proposal would pass the House or the Senate. And so you had last week President Biden jumping in publicly, really, for the first time to say that he would endorse this kind of an approach. And then you had over the weekend Donald Trump basically saying, no, we don't want this. We don't think it's uh, it, it, this is a good plan. And so you've got Republicans now in the House and Senate, including the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, the Republican, saying uh, it's dead on arrival. If it passes the Senate, it's dead on arrival in the House. And what's interesting is because this has been negotiated with, you know, a Republican like uh, Mr. Lankford and others, um, this is probably one of the most um, conservative and um, more far-reaching immigration measures that is is under consideration by Congress in years, if not decades. So uh, what's interesting here is, and we're getting back to this whole idea of the context of the presidential campaign, uh, you've got Donald Trump and a lot of his uh, key allies on the Hill not wanting to pass this because they, they say it's not going to be effective, but they also don't want to give a political win to President Biden and sure. Democrats to run on in 2024 this fall. So uh, politics is certainly playing a, a key issue here. And let me just give just one more example. I, I mentioned um, Senator Lankford. Uh, again, he's a Republican from Oklahoma, conservative, but he has been one of these key negotiators. And over the weekend, the Republican Party in his home state voted to condemn and censure him for being involved in bipartisan negotiations. You are kidding me. Not not for something he even has voted on because there's nothing formally been proposed yet. But the fact that he's even been in these talks, his own GOP party in his home state has said, we don't like what you're doing. Really? How dare you reach across the aisle? 
essentially. And that's that's what a lot of Americans are, have been clamoring for. Right. They, they have been looking to Capitol Hill to say, get your act together, try and work together, find consensus, find do, solutions. Do something resembling anything. Right. Yeah. And he's been trying to do that, whether you agree or not, you know, with, you know, the the ultimate substance of a proposal or a legislation. But the fact to uh, to kind of preemptively um, condemn him and attack him this way is uh, it just shows you the politics involved in this situation right now. That is incredible. All right, Greg, our time is uh, almost up, but I have a I have a question for you before you leave us. Sure. Yeah, the question is, um, the, the next topic we're going to be discussing is the average age of marriage in each U.S. state. And so it's a personal question, but I'd like to know perhaps how old you and your wife were when you married. We were young. We were kids. I was 22. Mm. My wife was 20. What? <laughs> Craig! Yeah. I was I was less than a year out of college, and my wife still had a year and a half to go. Oh, Excellent. my gosh. Nice. And do you look back on that and you think, that was a good thing we got married at that time? Or do you look back and say, oh, we probably should have waited a couple of years? Absolutely the right thing to do. Very nice. We, Love we, that. we were meant for each other and still are meant for each other. And it was, uh, it was an easy decision that way once we realized that uh, we were soulmates. Very good. I love that story. Well done, Greg. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You married well. Yes, you did. Always a pleasure, Greg. Uh, We set our weekly clock with your appearance here. So thank you for being with us. Hey, it's a pleasure for me, too. Have a great week. Thanks. You as well. It's Greg Clugston, SRN News White House correspondent. What's normal in Washington, D.C. does not match the average marriage age in Utah. There is a a visualization guide of the average age of marriage in each United States that is mapped. Mm. And, of course, uh, while the discourse about American behavior gets flattened on the global stage, it couldn't be more clear that different states have wildly different social norms about marriage. Uh, I'm reading from... Uh, Dig, which is a website that we follow, dig.com. Um, while noting that um, the, the ages vary wildly from state to state and um, place to place, Utah, unambiguously the biggest, the state with the biggest church attendance, has the lowest age for women to get married at just 25.3 years. For men, Wyoming takes that spot, the youngest age, at 27 years. Washington, D.C. has the highest median age for both women and men with 30.7 years and 32.5 years, respectively. Okay, so 30.7 is women? Mm-hmm. And men, 32.5. Uh-huh. Uh, let me tell you where Pennsylvania yeah. stands at 29.4. Twenty nine point four. Okay, what about? Do you have all of them there at your disposal? Uh, I have. It's interesting. Uh, I have most of them here. Okay. Uh, District of Columbia, of course, as I said, thirty point seven. That's the highest. Yep. New York State at thirty point six. Vermont twenty nine point four. Let me see. Ohio twenty seven point nine. Uh, what about a southern state like Oklahoma or Alabama Oklahoma, or Georgia? Twenty six point one years of age. Okay. Arkansas twenty five point one. Wyoming twenty five point six. So, uh, 
I don't know if that means anything. I guess, you know, I look at, okay, California. Go ahead. What's California? California is, um, California is 30.0 on the dot. Well, I'm not sure what it means either, but it's surprising to me. The the first thing that's surprising is that Utah has the lowest number Mm -hmm. at 25.3. Yep. But that's not as low as I expected it would be. You're right. I mean, we just talked about yeah, Clugston. I mean, 15 years ago, I bet that number was 22.3. Could be, right? The people and waiting. And 30 years ago, I bet it was 20. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Florida, 29.2 years of age. I mean, the good news is, is that people are getting married at yes. all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, sooner rather than later, of course. Um, it's interesting to hear Greg say, talk about this, that what was he was 22. Mm-hmm. And his, his wife was 20. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was still in college. Yep. And here, did he say he was 56? 50, no, 58. Okay. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So how old were you when you married? Old. How old? 39. 39. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now here, so what I take is when I look at District of Columbia and New York State, these are people I believe who would be a little more intent on career before family, mm-hmm. right? For right? sure. Which is what I was thinking, right? But you were you were younger. Yeah, I was twenty four mm-hmm. when I married. Yeah, and your daughter soon to be. Yeah, she'll be twenty two when she gets mm-hmm. married. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't uh-huh. it? It is. I mean, you can look at it two different ways. You can like. Feel like you have to get your whole act together, right? You have to before you have you to have it. a career. You have to do everything before you get married, or you can say, you know, we're going to commit to loving each other and we're going to grow up together, right? And two sides of the coin, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's a one size fits no. all, obviously, for each person, right? Absolutely not. Right? There's not a one each size couple fits looks all. at it. Each person looks at it individually, right? Right. Okay. Right. Well, go Utah. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We're going to talk about. Systematic theology. What is it? And does it mean anything to the average person? That's next on the ride home. If you're a Christian, I think all of us should be supremely grateful of those men and women who labor and seminary. The difficulty of that, mm-hmm. the the call to what it is to be a seminary professor. Well, joining us from RPTS, Reformed Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, is Dr. Richard Gamble, who is professor of systematic theology. And uh, Dr. Gamble, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Can you talk about, give us a working definition of systematic theology, please? Yes, ma'am. Uh, systematic theology is taking um, any of the main teachings of the scripture like God and we look at the doctrine of God from Genesis to Revelation and then how the church has um, understood that revelation through the centuries or Christ or the church or the sacraments or human nature. So systematic theology is a systematic examination of the teaching of Scripture and the unfolding of that teaching through time. And necessary, Dr. Gamble, to teach that, to learn that, why? Well, the Scriptures are the foundation for preaching, for life in the Church. And so we, of course, teach the Scriptures in seminary. 
but especially for uh, Bible studies and uh, principally for preachers, they need to see the whole sweep of uh, the Bible's teaching on any given topic. Mm-hmm. So talk about how uh, you evaluate um, scriptural teaching and how it applies to different issues throughout history. Um, and, and is that part of the system? Yes, ma'am. So uh, uh, we take, say, uh, well, let's do a difficult one, the doctrine of God and the Trinity. Mm-hmm. We all we all hold that the Trinity is essential for uh, anybody joining our church in the 21st century. But as we look at the scripture, uh, there's no proof text that says that God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but, but yet we consider it essential. So uh, in systematic theology, we examine all the different passages uh, that make up the tapestry for a full Trinitarian confession. And then also to understand that we examine how the church has wrestled through that in the different creeds and confessions. Mm-hmm. And so these holy geniuses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when they were writing their gospels, were they thinking at all? I mean, systematic theology, um, how does that even come into their, their life and their writing and their telling us about Jesus? That's a great question. So all uh, the four Gospels were written after the resurrection. And as we read any one of the four Gospels, uh, sometimes wouldn't you guys agree that the disciples act like knuckleheads? Um, Sometimes they really don't get it right. Right. And then the resurrection occurs, and it's uh, like the Holy Spirit uh, brings this this great understanding to them, and Christ opens up the whole of Scripture so that they see, for example, that Isaiah spoke of this Messiah, who's both suffering servant and King of Kings, and uh, that's what they write about. That is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He's Lord, and this notion of Jesus as Lord is in fact a systematic theological notion that's uh, you, uh, a systematic theologian could speak for hours literally about what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. It's, mm. it's a tremendous statement that's, that's foundational to the church. Yes. And so, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't necessarily comparing notes with each other, of course, as they're writing the gospel, but there it is in front of them. They all followed the same course in a way. Yeah, and uh, but Luke is special, isn't he, with Luke and Acts, and he, he gives an account. His, his gospel is different. In a sense, he says, I've been doing research. So he probably was actually looking at the other gospels and uh, comparing and uh, bringing in insights um, that uh, the other gospels don't have. And, of course, John is unique. Um, uh, in his own way because of uh, just the way in which he's thinking. And as we think about John's gospel, uh, remember those opening verses of the gospel, that's a systematic theological statement as, you know, as he talks about uh, who Christ is. So that's what we do with systematic theology. 
Can you talk about the um, the approach that the Roman Catholic Church would take or the Orthodox uh, Church would take, um, which is heavy on church tradition um, as a teaching tool? Um, and uh, as illustrative for uh, the contemporary life of Roman Catholics or Orthodox Christians. How is systematic theology different from your Reformed perspective than what they practice or believe? Yeah, well, um, there are similarities. So uh, the medieval uh, Roman Catholic theologians held to the Trinity just like we do. Um, So there are points of uh, connection, and the issue is, that word that you use, tradition. So for us as, an, as evangelicals, um, Scripture always trumps tradition. Scripture always trumps any type of theological system. So uh, there's wrong systematic theology, which would be, for me, uh, the Roman Catholic teaching that puts tradition on the same, let me use a, a heavy word, ontological level. It's, mm-hmm. It has the same same authority. And that's anathema. Jesus ends the New Testament by saying in Revelation that uh, this is the beginning and the end. Anyone who adds to it or takes from it, uh, may the curses be on them. And and that's what uh, the Roman Church has done and has made tradition equally authoritative, which we would never do in the Protestant tradition. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Gamble from RPTS, Reformed Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. We're talking about systematic theology. Dr. Gamble, um, obviously, uh, as a doctor in theology, you're a learned man. You must think and write and pray about this often, regularly, I'm sure almost probably daily. Um, are you still excited by this? I mean, uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a delineation between the intellectual capacity um, the psychological, the spiritual, all those things together, um, you're still engaged. Yes, sir. And uh, what's really fun is uh, we haven't met John, but I've been a seminary professor for 43 years, wow. a little longer than that. Wow. And and I'm more excited the older I get. Really? Um, uh, I'm old enough to you know, that I could retire, but I... I absolutely don't want to. Um, I just love being with the students and wrestling through this stuff. So let me promise um, anyone who's listening, uh, the longer you walk with Christ, the deeper you study his word, the more intimate your fellowship is with him uh, intellectually as well as emotionally, it only gets better. That's fabulous. 43 years is a long time. So can you talk about that? You know, the world was certainly different 43 years ago when you started to first pick this up to where we are now, but still God's word holds true. It is, of course, timeless. Uh, what about that in your in your own understanding? Uh, and how you look at God's creation, this world, and how things can be topsy-turvy, Dr. Gamble, um, still confident in all these things? Well, things have changed. So when I first started teaching, um, you stand in front of the classroom with your white shirt and tie on, and you machine gun information (laughs) to the students, and they they write it down furiously, uh, frantically, and then they regurgitate it for Mm. the exams. In the last 20 years, uh, the students have changed. The word hasn't changed, but students have changed. And um, so uh, I've had to learn to adjust my teaching style mm-hmm. uh, to, the, to the newer generation. So that's the part that's changed. But 
Well, God and his word um, abides forever. And it's uh, it was a delight 43 years ago, and it's still a delight. Fabulous. It's what C.S. Lewis talks about, right, in the Narnia Chronicles is further up and further in, is that it just it, it's not something that you get bored by the more you know. It's true. It's it's sort of like a good marriage, right? Who gets bored by your spouse? You just love them more deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Richard Gamble's with us, professor of systematic theology at the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in the Point Breeze neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Um, Dr. Gamble, before you leave us, can you talk a little bit about the seminary and your work there for people who might be interested? The seminary is a great place. Um, I've taught at other seminaries. And we are a true Christian community uh, where uh, men and women uh, love Christ and love to be together and love to study together. And um, I would hardly um, invite anybody to come visit us and uh, and check us out, whether uh, you're called to pastoral ministry or, or simply want to be a more engaged believer. Uh, the seminary uh, has offerings for you. Very nice. Dr. Gamble, it's been a short visit, but a fascinating one. Thanks for peeling sort of the the lid back a little bit for us to peek inside. It's a delight to be with you, and thank you for inviting me. The pleasure's been ours. Dr. Richard Gamble, Professor of Systematic Theology, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. I'm sorry, I said Reformed Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. It's right on Penn Avenue in the East End part of the city of Pittsburgh. RPTS. There is a wild story about adoption in uh, today's online edition of the the BBC website. And it concerns um, initially two children, who um, uh, two sisters, Amy and Ano, A-N-O, who are identical twins. And um, one um, was in the country of Georgia and one was in Russia. And one sister, Amy was at home when she was a little girl, and she was watching a show called Georgia's Got Talent. Okay. Right? This is kind of like a, a spinoff of, you know, America's Got Talent. And there she was watching this, this show, and there was a young woman, her, her same age, she was 11 years old, who was dancing. And this, this young girl, Amy, says, I remember looking at the TV set going, that's me. That young girl looks exactly like me. She called her mother in, and her mother dismissed it and said, no, I, I, I don't think so. You're imagining that. And so she let it go. Seven years later. Now she's 18. The same young woman, Amy, is on TikTok, and there's a young woman who, again, is performing a dance number with a pierced eyebrow who looks like her. Now she's 18. And so she says, that can't be a coincidence. That is me. So she showed it to her friends and they were like, that looks like your twin. Anyway, through some internet snooping and sleuthing around and trying to find a connection, she reached out and found this woman. So Amy online introduced herself to Ano, and they discovered eventually that they were twins separated birth, separated Come at on. birth. Now it gets deeper. Okay. The country of Georgia, through systematic corruption, t- 
took more than 100,000 children when they were born, told their birth mothers that they had died (gasps) and were not able to recover the remains. And through the government and a series of doctors, government officials, taxi drivers, you name it, everybody took a little slice and 100,000 children were sold (gasps) to people Wanting their own baby. You're kidding. So the, all of those kids just disappeared. Yep. A hundred thousand oh or gosh. more over more than 30 years. <gasps> this is just now coming to light. And the government of Georgia is saying, yes, this happened in previous times with previous administrations. And now we're trying to make things right. So that was a governmental program. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Now, both parents of Amy and Ano. They, their parents were unable to have children. So someone in the black market told them about this, and I'll put this in quotes, this program where you could buy a child. wasn't cheap. Typically, they say the cost was about a year's worth of salary in the state of Georgia, in the country of Georgia. And so a lot of families ponied this up. And then these there were false birth certificates were produced, false identifications were produced. And the weird thing is, in this article in the BBC, these were not the only identical twins who have now found each other. Stolen children, sold at birth, and reunited. And this is happening increasingly again and again and again. So that's so her mother knew because that, her mother had Wanted and a baby. father had paid for the child. Right. But so didn't she know was the like, extent. Right. But she was like poo-pooing it. Yes. So she wouldn't look into it. Exactly. Now, her mother told her um, when, um, I'm sorry. So Amy and Ano went online and with her sleuthing again, they eventually found their birth mother. Oh, really? And the birth mother said, when you were born, we were told that the baby had died. And so the mother, the Amy and Eno's birth mother, she was uh, aggressive in wanting to have her baby back. The doctors at the hospital where they were so, born. So she could bury the baby? Yes. Gave her a suitcase and said, your baby's inside, but please, you're prohibited from looking inside because of what happened to your baby at birth. You do not want to see this. So inside is your baby. You can bury this baby, but please don't look. And she followed those orders. And there was nothing in there. There was something in there that oh, weighted it down. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Can you believe that? That's the Soviet bloc. I mean, that's I communism. It is. And the levels of corruption it that is. go on, went on. It is. And change people's lives forever and ever and ever. That is an amazing story. Yeah. So did the story detail anything about how Amy and Ano dealt with that with their... With their birth with mother. Their cur- no, with their current parents. Yeah, they did. Yeah. It goes into the stories. And of course, once both both sets of parents knew that they, you know, the secret was the out. The gig was up. Yeah. You know, they, they did confess and say, we just wanted a baby. We wanted to raise you. And so we were told that we had to abide by the secrecy because, of course, we knew that this corruption was going to go so deep. We didn't want to be outed and cause waves. It would hurt us in the end. And the birth mom didn't know she had twins? No. And there they are. Here's a picture of them. Let me find this picture. These these two young girls, I mean, the beautiful little dark-haired girls. Uh, and you're they, reading this from today's from New York today's, Times? Uh, no, from today's BBC. Oh, today's BBC. Here they are. 
Oh, they're lovely. Mm-hmm. They're two. They're two very dark-haired girls. Yes. That you could tell instantly are Eastern European. Yep. And petite. Right. Mm-hmm. They are identical twins. There is no question about that. Wow. Interesting. It says here that they met for the first time in a metro station. Yep. And they had the exact same haircut. That's amazing, isn't it? They have often chosen similar hairstyles. Yes. That I, That's just an incredible story. Communism and the corruption within that. It's just, it's any, it's any kind of autocratic state, isn't it? Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Thanks for coming along for the Monday, January 29th edition of The Ride Home. You're listening to FM Radio. Mm-hmm. Now, here, Salem Media operates several radio stations. We are the FM Stick We also operate a couple of AM radio stations, AM 73. You might know that. It's our sister station. Mm -hmm. But there is um, a concerted effort to eradicate AM radio from the dial. Um, Do you know this, that Tesla, Volvo, and BMW are among the automakers that have already stopped providing AM tuners in their cars? Yeah. Last year, Ford said it would join the chorus of eliminating AM radio. That is until CEO Jim Farley reversed course after speaking with policy leaders. Now, there is um, a law that is coming before Congress because lawmakers say that most car companies are noncommittal about the future of AM radio. But there is a, a bill, legislation, that has united lawmakers who ordinarily want nothing to do with each other. Uh, Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas. Ed Malarkey, who's a Democrat from Massachusetts are leading a Senate effort um, on the House side. Speaker Mike Johnson himself, a former talk radio host, is hoping to have a bill that would require all automakers to include AM radio in their, in their cars. Last Monday, a Representative Joss Gottmeyer from New Jersey, who's a Democrat, introduced a House bill that plans to ask the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to require automakers to include a safety warning on price stickers of vehicles that don't have AM radio. Mm, mm-hmm. Quote, every time a dealership sells a vehicle without AM radio, customers need to be warned that they are missing a key safety feature for future emergencies, he says. Now, you know there are more than 4,500 AM radio stations across the country, 600 that broadcast in a language other than English. The industry group has produced ads and briefed radio personalities about the issue, and more than 400,000 AM radio listeners have emailed, called, or sent social media messages to their lawmakers. I did that. Yes. The prospect of losing AM radio in vehicles has also caused alarm in Latino media. A spring uh, 2023 Nielsen survey says the most recent one available showed that AM radio reaches about 78 million Americans every month. That's down from nearly 107 million. That's still a lot. In the spring of 2016. I mean, there are only 326 million people in America. That's right. 
But, of course, the truth is, and, of course, everybody knows this, especially people of a certain age, that AM radio has been in long decline. FM radio audiences mm-hmm. surpassed those on AM in the late 1970s. Consumers now, of course, even more choices. Uh, but the the fact is that AM radio is necessary because when there are emergencies... That's the, that's the whole thing. What do you know about that? It, well, it's foolhardy to get rid of AM radio. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I understand that we have a ton of choices. FM, The FM signal is more clear. Yes. Uh, that's why we're fortunate to be uh, on, on an FM uh, product. But yep. the other thing is that if there is an emergency, AM radio reaches farther... Deeper, wider. For a longer time. Yep. And for people who live in more rural sections of the United States, FM is not an option for them. Exactly. AM radio is their only option. So, I mean, everybody knows about the decline in AM radio um, because we have so many options right now. But if there is an emergency and those options are cut off, let's see how many people are listening to AM radio. Exactly. In our house, we have multiple radios, which I imagine you do. Sure. And many of them are battery driven. So say there was a national emergency. The power grid went down. Yep. There's no internet. Right. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go for news and information? Yep. You would go to, to AM, AM radio. radio. And, and everybody would. Even people who don't listen to the radio right. now, they would go that, or they would be with somebody who would go to AM radio. Yes. It's just... it. Like I said, it's just, it's silly, it's foolhardy to uh, pursue a future without AM radio, especially in a country as large as this. Yeah. And to leave a safety decision to the automakers... <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy. It doesn't it make any sense at all. It is. So hopefully these bills that are now proposed and they're winding their way through legislation have life, and AM radio will continue to be a viable option for millions and millions of people across this country. Yep. We and, need AM and radio. And even if it's not your choice right now, it's not the thing that you're going to listen to. There'll be a time. Yes, there'll be a time, and there are millions and millions of people in this country that need it. Amen. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you've been a Christian for a certain amount of time, you have a relationship with Christ. But if you're a Mormon, a a Buddhist, a Jew, a Muslim, your relationship with Jesus, an atheist, or a nun, yeah, an O-N-E. Your relationship, your knowledge of Jesus is certainly a lot different than you or yours or mine. Well, Jay Warner Wallace is back with us. Jay Warner Wallace is a Dateline featured cold case detective. He's an author, a speaker, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. His newest book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. But here today to talk to you about who is Jesus according to other religions. Jim, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is something that I was investigating, you know, many years ago when I first encountered Jesus on the pages of the New Testament, because my suspicion was was that if he really was who he said he was, wouldn't you expect him to have this huge ripple effect in history? It wouldn't just be, well, these, these four Gospels record the life of Jesus, but wouldn't you expect him to begin to infiltrate every other thought about God globally. And that's really what Jesus does. Yeah. So you, Jim, your very unique background as a police officer and specifically as a cold case detective, there was a time in your life when you didn't know Jesus, didn't care to know Jesus, but because of your skill and training, you discovered Jesus in some way through a cold case way and picked up this thread about other religions. 
Well, yeah, a lot of it is you, you, if you don't look, if you don't trust anything that's in scripture, it's hard to kind of start reading it and develop your worldview based on it. Right. I, I needed to know, was there a good reason to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, even if I didn't trust and I didn't at the time, uh, the scriptures. So I thought, well, look, um, when we work these cold cases, some of them we work them because we know that there's a bunch of stuff that happened prior to the missing person. And then afterwards, you see a bunch of fallout. In other words, the person goes missing, a wife, and the husband claims she ran off. And you're wondering, was that true or not? And 30 years go by. Now you're working the case as a cold case. And I'm going to look at that day of the explosive day that she went missing as a bomb that was detonated. But all bombs have a fuse. And then all bombs leave residue and, and shrapnel all over the blast radius after. Afterwards. So you are going to have to make the case because I typically don't have any evidence in these cases. I don't have a crime scene. They didn't work it that way 30 years ago. So I've got to figure out from the fuse and the fallout. Well, I thought, is there a similar fuse and fallout to explain why we are calling the first century the first century? Like what led up to it? So if I don't trust the Bible, that's fine. I would know just from the fuse and fallout of history, whether or not this change in our calendar was warranted based on the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the things I examined in the fallout there's a lot of stuff, right? Like his impact on art and literature and music and education, believe it or not, and science, believe it or not. But one of them was just his impact on other theistic worldviews. And it turns out that um, everybody who followed Jesus, of course, has to hat tip Jesus. So if there's a religious worldview that appears on the timeline after Jesus, you would just expect it to mention Jesus in some way. So, for example, the Baha'i faith system mentions Jesus and puts him in a very high place. So does Islam, as a matter of fact. But what was interesting to me is that even the significant worldviews, theistic worldviews that preceded Jesus in the historic timeline, once Jesus appears, they end up bending their knee to Jesus. That struck me as interesting. So if you look at things like Hinduism, and how Jesus is considered in Hinduism, for example, to be somebody who uh, epitomizes. He is, he's considered a Hindu saint, quote unquote, from many Hindus because of his life and teaching. Some Hindus actually believe that Jesus spent time in India as a young man. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're holding a Hindu worldview, there's room for for, for Jesus in that, that worldview. He's considered somebody who's not only... Uh, 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 kind of a, a, an example of a saint, but that he's somebody who teaches by example and therefore kind of practices a, a form of Hinduism in, in the way he lived. He's considered divine by some Hindus, uh, even though he's not seen as uniquely divine. He's seen as, the, look, Hindus worship lots of gods and goddesses. Uh, they often do. and But some include Jesus on that list of deities, considering him the perfect example of what they call self-realization. In other words, many see Jesus as a God-man of sorts. Mm. This is his impact on a worldview that existed long time before Christianity. He's going to now by, if you listen to the teaching of Hindu leaders, you're probably going to hear something about uh, Jesus as a wise teacher, a model of morality, mm. a divine figure. He's going to fit into that world system. That's that's true not just for Hinduism. It's also true for many other ancient, ancient theistic worldviews or spiritual worldviews. And and that modification where where people begin to bend their knee to the person of Jesus is interesting considering that Jesus arrives in history at a time when there were many deities being worshipped. Hmm. And never does he return the favor. Right. So the the reverse then is not true. <clears throat> Buddha or Muhammad do not show up in scriptures. 
Right. They don't show up as even examples of how you might live. But Jesus now ends up as an, an examples of how you might live. And also, by the way, it's not just that. If all if you read the Hindu leaders, right, you read what they say about Jesus, they end up repeating the details of Jesus's story. So if you didn't have a Bible and all the Bibles in the world were destroyed, every New Testament document, including all the ancient manuscripts leading up to whatever you're holding in your hands, all of that is destroyed. You would know something about Jesus just from the teaching of Hindu leaders. You would know, for example, that he was born in a stable and visited by wise men and worked miracles and preached sermons. These are things that Hindus repeat. So if you're someplace in the world where uh, Hinduism reigns, but there's no Christians, you already know something about Jesus, most likely, if your Hindu leaders say what many do about Jesus. That's the impact he's having on Hinduism. Some, you know, this is not just Hinduism. It's a bunch of other uh, world worldviews also that he begins to modify. He begins to influence. So what does that tell us, Jim? Well, look, I mean, you can't, it's, it's, what's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, and this is how I typically put it. Um, there's no historical figure in the history of historical figures. There's no religious leader. There's no alleged deity that has had more impact. And this is what I try to demonstrate in person of interest in art, music, um, literature, education, science, and world religions than Jesus of Nazareth. If you think there is, Show me. There is no one. And once you see the kind of impact that Jesus has had in literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions, it becomes clear that this is not just, oh, well, yeah, he's had some impact. No, no, no. Science, for example, is largely dependent upon the work of Christians who, under a Christian worldview, advance the sciences and have become the fathers and mothers and, and founders of the most major disciplines within the sciences, from, from uh, modern astronomy all the way to quantum mechanics. The kind of level of and from every one of these areas, art, literature, music, education, science, and world religions, you could reconstruct the story from the writers and leaders in those disciplines. So if you had no New Testament, you could completely reconstruct the New Testament from the statements of those leaders in those areas I just described. Who else has got a life story that could be reconstructed from the most significant players in literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions? There's no one like this. So you have three choices. Either he's a myth, but if that's the case, you tell me what other work of fiction has had this kind of impact. Or you could argue he's just a guy, but tell me what other man you can think of who's had this kind of impact. Or he might just be who he claimed to be. That would make sense. If God steps back into his creation, he'd have this kind of impact. So of those three choices, man, myth, or Messiah, Messiah makes the best sense of the evidence of impact. We're speaking with Jay Warner Wallace. He's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective. His latest book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Jim, uh, your story, of course, well documented for many years, um, decades. You were not a believer of Jesus, but because of your training as a detective, you found the truth of Jesus in your own life. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is what the, the kind of the mythology is that that people of science and and and, and reason uh, they they look at the evidence to determine if something is true. And you people of faith, you just trust something you can never demonstrate. Well, look, all of us hold a worldview for which we have less than perfect information. If you're an atheist out there listening to this, well, yeah, tell me how the origin of the universe can be explained, how the fine tuning we see in the universe is explained, how origin of life, the appearance of design in biology, a consciousness, free agency. 
agency, objective moral truths. There are, from an atheistic worldview, there are so many open questions. In other words, you've got evidence, but not everything you need. Well, this is true of every single worldview, including Christianity. But I, we simply ask uh, jurors in cases to walk to the end of the evidence trail. It points right at that defendant. And yes, you'll have to take a step across the end of the evidence to a verdict. Everyone does. I can never answer every question in a criminal trial. I never have been able to. I, there's no perfect case. That standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That step at the end of the evidence trail is called a verdict. Same thing on this side. It's got less than perfect information. Do I have questions about God still? Of course I do. But I have more than enough evidence that points to directly to Jesus. And when I step across the end of that evidence trail, that's simply called a step of faith. But it's not a blind faith. It's an informed faith that's directed by the evidence trail. And I think there's more than enough evidence to direct us to Jesus. Jay Werner Wallace is our guest. He's Dateline featured cold case detective. He's the author of a whole bunch of books, including Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Um, You, Jim, uh, were of the Mormon faith before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. We're fortunate here in Pittsburgh, Jim, because we have we have a great audience of people who believe all sorts of different things. Um, Pittsburgh is kind of a um, it's a it used to be a mill town. Now it's a tech town, but it's filled with, I think, a lot of curious people. And um, so we often have people who contact us who don't who aren't from a Christian perspective, as you weren't. So can you talk about what that was like to have a, you know, a family from a Mormon perspective and then kind of what that trajectory was like for you? Okay, yeah. So, so my my parents divorced when I was three, and, and my dad's a committed atheist. I was not raised around any believers of any kind until he married a second wife, and his second wife became a Mormon pretty quickly. And so I have half-siblings who were raised Mormon. I was, uh, during this time, always an atheist. I never bought into any of it. My dad's the same way. But he thinks it's it's useful to believe in something. But he's like, he. I was the same way. I would go to church. If you want to go to church, I'll go with you. If it helps you, great. I don't have to believe it in order to go. That's still my dad's view. So I came at this looking at all worldviews simultaneously. And when I first opened my, the Bible, I did have Mormon family that brought me their Book of Mormon. Hmm. But I didn't want to stop there. I got all of it. Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, uh, Doctrines and Covenants. I got every piece of Mormon scripture I could get my hands on. And I simply applied the same test that I apply to eyewitness reliability to the gospel authors and to the writer of the Book of Mormon or the writers of the Book of Mormon. And if you apply that test, and we talk about that in Cold Case Christianity, it it immediately demonstrated to me that I wasn't sure if Christianity was true yet, but Mormonism failed so quickly in that test that I knew that wasn't true. And I'll tell you that if you take this approach to what's true, it will not only guide you to truth, it'll prevent you from following error. And so I knew pretty quickly that on the four tests of an eyewitness, were you really there to see what you said you saw? Can you be corroborated in some way? Did you change your story over time? And do you have some motive to lie to me? That, unfortunately, and I know when I say this, so many Mormons now think of themselves as Christians, even though the church itself has never considered that to be the case. They often do. That they look at this and say, how could you call it Jesus Christ is in our our name of our, our church? But there's three Jim there's three Jim Wallaces who worked at the same agency, my agency, as detectives and police officers. One is my dad, one is me, one is my son. Same name, same agency, pretty much the same life, three different generations. But if you don't know which one we're talking about, you can say, Well, I know Jim Wallace, but you may not know me at all. Hmm. You may know my father or my son. 
You can say you know Jesus Christ, but you may not know him at all if he's a completely different character, the invention of somebody uh, who doesn't, who never really knew Jesus this way, doesn't know the real Jesus. So in the end, I would say, yes, you may have that name in your church, but let's test the documents to see if they pass as eyewitness accounts. Hmm. Jim, you're fascinating. We always enjoy our conversation with you. I mean, you bring it, that perspective of a cold case homicide detective. Uh, of all the guests we have, it, it's just mm-hmm. really amazing how you're able to, to, to work your way through this. Uh, before you do leave us, though, talk to us about cold case. People want to find you. Of course, a lot of people know you from Dateline, a very popular show. But uh, you've taken this a big step further. Well, you can find us at coldcasechristianity.com, and I'm going to come back with you guys here in a couple of months because the next book is called The Truth and True Crime, and I think it'll mm. actually take this to one more level. But yes, I, th- I think there's more than enough reason, and I always tell, tell people, don't, don't buy a book until you've exhausted what you can get for free. <laughs> Our <laughs> website, there are thousands of pieces of content that you can get for free, and I hope it's helpful for people. Very nice. Jim, we've been friends for a long time, and we're grateful for it. Thanks so much for always having me. You were my very first media interview, as you know, and uh, I'll hope that you're not the last, but uh, I'm glad, I would be glad if it was. So let's start and finish with you guys. <laughs> That's good. Jim, we love you. Always a pleasure. Talk love soon. You guys too. All right. Thanks again. Jay Werner Wallace, please do yourself a favor. Look at Cold Case uh, online. Dateline featured Cold Case detective Jay Werner Wallace. make sense? Yeah, does what make sense? The five-second rule. I've dropped something on the floor, a food product. It's less than five seconds I can eat it. I'd say it depends on how bad you want it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a malleable rule. Well, so is food (laughs) and your desires. (laughs) Yeah, I... I think it does make sense, depending upon, I, I believe this, depending upon the surface that it falls on. Okay. Like, if it falls on, like, we're sitting on this counter here, it's like, you know, maybe Formica yeah, or something, something like, like that. Yeah, something like that. That's not a porous surface. Mm-hmm. So things are not apt to sort of hang out on that, like germs and whatnot. Of course, you don't know that. Right. But if it fell on the carpet, that's a whole other story, right? Yeah. So, if, you know, if you're, what, you're... Your piece of steak fell on the carpet. You want to pick that up and eat that? I think it also it has to do with the the formulation of the thing you've dropped. Uh-huh. Like if I drop a peanut M M&M, and M, oh, that's smooth. That's surface. a hard shell. I I can blow on it. I right. feel good about it. Right. I think then I think the five second rule makes a ton of As sense. As opposed to lasagna. Listen, it doesn't matter what surface you're dropping that on. Can You're not eating that. No, I don't think so. That, so the five-second rule doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about so that. So I, I feel like I want to say, yes, it does make sense, and no, it doesn't make sense at the same time. Right, right. So your results may vary. I think right? so. And it's a personal decision. I, well, right? I, yeah, yeah. You know, take whatever risks are applicable to you. Yeah, the five-second rule. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. Yeah, certain, it's, yeah, uh, right. Sometimes they're never, like... Don't ever do that with lasagna. We were out with friends on Saturday night, and uh, buddy next to me, he ordered the Impossible Burger. Mm-hmm. Now I'll say this: it would be impossible for me to order that <laughs> burger, right? Because you know what? It doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. The Garden Burger, no. the what a vegan burger. Listen, I mean, uh, 
if that's your health thing, I mean, I get it. For, good for you. But does that really, is that, is that going to be satisfying, like, you know, a nice meaty burger? Well, I don't even know if, first of all, the answer has to be no. But what's in it is, I believe, the, the thing that's really disturbing. And what, what makes is it, it? Like, We're not really sure. So there's some vegetables, but there's also a bunch of fillers and gummy stuff and, some you know, whatever. I don't holding want, it together. I don't want science holding it together. I don't, want, I don't want to eat the science. Do you ever have a bite? They don't taste bad. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're really good for you. Like you open up a menu, you got a choice between like a nice burger and that. I mean, what? that doesn't clearly it doesn't make sense. That's impossible. Not doing that. With protesters outside a full arena, John, bullfights resumed in Mexico yesterday after the country's highest court temporarily revoked a local ruling that sided with animal rights defenders and suspended the events for more than a year and a half. I'm reading here from the Associated Press, the resumption of bullfights in the Plaza Mexico, the largest bullfighting arena in the world, raised expectations of fans in the face of a lengthy legal battle between enthusiasts and opponents who argue that the practice violates animal welfare and affects people's rights to a healthy environment. Um, so that's been a big story, and um, it's become a bigger story since bullfighting resumed yesterday. Um, we were talking about it before the show, and I, I did not realize that you have been to a bullfight yourself. I have. Was it in Mexico? No, it was in Spain. Okay. Um, <clears throat> How did you end up there? Uh, I was... Um, I was a young man uh, with some expendable income and some wanderlust and um, took myself from Pittsburgh to New York to New York to England to England to wander through Europe uh, from Portugal, um, uh, from Spain into Portugal. But while I was in, in Spain... I saw the posters. This was like, you know, 1980-ish, early 80s, I would say. And um, I, I had read um, uh, Ernest Hemingway's book, A Death in the Afternoon. Okay. Which um, is not a, it's a nonfiction book about the traditions of bullfighting, the history of bullfighting. And, uh, you know, in the book, he, he goes into details about the different styles, the fear, the courage, all that. Um, and so it was a curiosity for me. And so I went one afternoon to, uh, to a bullfight. And, and you went with a group by No, I yourself? went by myself. I, okay. was, I was literally solo by myself okay. in Europe. Just to kind of see what it was like. I had to. I, yeah. was, I was in Madrid. And so I wanted to see, you know, what, what this was all about. Okay. Um, Set the stage. Well, um, not a large arena, but not a small arena. Okay. Um, you know, people have seen images like this. I mean, it's circular. It's kind of like, you know, the Colosseum-ish in a way. Okay. Uh, a dirt. And um, maybe held 5,000 people. Oh, okay. You know, it's somewhere in that ballpark. Is it a hot day? Is it? Oh, it's super hot. It was, it was uh, July. And... Um, People of all sorts of class, right? Um, young and old. It was very community, and there was a parade going into the bullfighting arena. You know, I think I'm, I think it started like you know early afternoon. A parade through the town. Uh, obviously, this is this had happened for probably a hundred years or more, and everybody on board, you know, knew what to expect. Uh, pay to get in? 
Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like any you know, a sporting event, uh, price varied depending upon your proximity. Uh, it wasn't expensive. I think I spent less than $5 to get in. And I had a decent seat. Um, now, I don't know. Of course, I, this was decades ago, and I, I, had, I had no stomach to sort of revisit. But, you know, there, if anybody knows anything about bullfighting, it's kind of like, you know, there are different um, classifications and different helpers who, you know, um, the conquista. The, the, everyone has an assigned role. Right. So, you know, th- this is your job. You know, the, the bull come a, a, a large wooden door is opened and the bull comes into the arena and he kind of like, you know, stumbles in or mm-hmm. runs in, depending upon the vigor and the attitude of the bull. And of course, um, as the as the events go on, they go from a smaller bull to the ultimate bull. Oh, so there. So this happens multiple times. Uh, I think the afternoon I saw it. <laughs> I think I saw six bulls get what? killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it went on for, I mean, literally hours. And it, now, of course, I'm not Spanish. I'm not Mexican. This is not my territory. This is me as a, you yeah. know, an outsider looking, looking at this. Um, beautiful, majestic animals mm-hmm. raised, you know, bred specifically for this moment in their lives. So I'm not quite sure, you know, the age, two, four, six years of age or whatnot. And, you know, the the gate is opened and the bull comes rushing in. And so, again, my my knowledge of this is minimal because I, I try to not revisit this. But the bull comes in and sees a figure before him and... There is sort of like a, a dance that goes on, right? Come in, and th- there is some dancing that moves forward. Mm-hmm. This cape and that cape, and there are, there are several men in the arena until the ultimate bullfighter arrives, and he is heralded as the champion. The savior is here to you know to show us his skill. You know, I'm sorry, this is you know really minimal here, but there is a measure of skill. Yeah. And courage that is exhibited. And a dance takes place. That's for lack of a better yeah. word. I'm not quite sure what that is. And Is there music playing? No. Okay. And the crowd loves it. I mean, when I saw it, the crowd, it was, it was, there was undoubtedly an electric atmosphere in the arena. Until such time as the Toreador takes out his sword and plunges it into the shoulders blades of the of the animal and then the the animal depending upon its you know placement of the of the sword into the bull stumbles and falls it takes a, a matter of time for this animal to be felled and then finally the animal dies and then he's dragged out of the arena and there's a pause in the action until we repeat it again and again and again and again. And what were your, how did you respond to that? What were your feelings or thoughts while that was going on? <laughs> now, again, this isn't, right? I, yeah, I know I'm it's not, not right. I left sickened. Did you? I was sad. And I wish I wouldn't have seen it. I was, why, why did I put myself through this? I mean, because, you know, it is romanticized. Sure, right. right. It is machismo. 
Right. And it is very cultural. And it's been going on for a long time. So I, I, there I was. I mean, well, how could I not want to see this? But um, And were most of the people in the arena tourists like you? No. Or, no, no, they were. were okay. Were, I would say largely locals. Okay. And so no one else really disturbed by it but you? Well, there may have been. But, you know, like I said, I was traveling by myself. I, I was alone at that time. Now, in my travels in Europe, I, you know, I met uh, other travelers. But at that time, I just remember being alone. So I d- didn't share that with anybody else and go, what the heck was that about? Holy smokes. But since that time, since those 80s, whenever the subject of bullfighting comes up, I think back on, the, on, the, on that afternoon and thought, well, I don't have to do that again. I don't necessarily want to see that. Um, I... You know, we live in a country in the United States that we're, are, we're, we're oddly problematic in our industrial age that, you know, we eat meat daily where, you know, in, in 100 years before people did not eat nearly as much meat as mm-hmm. we do. But our consumption of meat, our, our execution of animals by the millions is invisible to us. Right. And clinical. Yeah. It's almost like it's magical it and doesn't exactly. really happen. But when you think about the... The number of animals that are killed every year so that we can enjoy a steak or a burger or whatnot. I mean, I'm sure by the millions. That's invisible to us. But bullfighting is a particularly otherworldly experience because uh, I'm not sure people are eating the bull. It's primarily for sport. And it has to do with courage and fear and how people engage in that. And it, of course, it goes back hundreds of years. Right. So I'm not going to point my finger and wag, right, you know, right. wag at someone about how dare they. This is not my place or time. But this is just a particularly American experience that I saw that I was heartbroken by what I witnessed. And I guess it's easy for me to say this, but I don't understand the need to establish dominance over an animal in a way like that. I just don't. I don't get why that's important. Um Either do, I guess, the 300 people that were gathered uh, in front of this plaza yesterday. They were protesting against the bullfights. Some activists uh, were yelling, murderers, uh, the plaza's going to fall. Others are playing drums, uh, standing with signs reading, bullfighting is sadism. Uh, Police stayed to kind of uh, keep the peace, though things were largely peaceful. Um, Largely. But, uh, (laughs) except in the the bullfighting ring, right? Right, right. Anyway, they, inside the plaza, the mood was festive. People were eating, drinking, yeah, sure. taking photos. It's a party atmosphere. Uh, yeah. Right? I mean, people are drinking, you know, sangria or beers or whatnot. And, you know, it, it's a community event. Yeah. It's not of us. Right. And animal rights groups, according to the AP, have been gaining ground in Mexico over the last few years while bullfighting followers have suffered some setbacks in different states in Mexico. Uh, bullfighting's limited. Uh, so it's similar to here, where in some states you can do things, in other states you sure. can't. I mean, you know. But it generates about $400 million a year uh, in Mexico. Uh, Bullfight, some... Listen to this. I'm sorry to interrupt. Bullfighting is responsible for 80,000 direct jobs and 146,000 indirect jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an industry. Right? I, I I mean, think about it. Wow. Like, I mean, it's not a, a, a clean comparison, but think about it like, you know, the American rodeo. Yeah, sure. Right? There are bulls, there are livestock, and it's sport, and it's, you know, community, and it's family, right? Mm-hmm. I remember on that same trip, um, I was, um, uh, someone said, hey, you want to go to the running of the bulls? Pamplona? Yeah. 
And I was like, no, I think <laughs> I'll skip that. I, I don't need to see the bull's revenge. Right. But a friend of mine did go and said, of course, you know, you've seen the images and you know, the videos and whatnot. It's absolute chaos. And occasionally people do get killed because, you know, again, it's that idea of fear and courage and machismo and getting close to danger. That's really what it is. I mean, because they're, maj- they're majestic animals. They're so incredibly mm-hmm. beautiful. And to think that you, in some ways, you know, in quotes here, conquer that. Right. Um, I don't know. So what? You're a human. Like, you're smarter than they are. Doesn't, it doesn't... It, but we are not right. Spanish. Right. We are not, not Mexican. Spanish. You're right. So we... Uh, you're right. I, I can't comment on You're that. absolutely right. I saw it. I'm, I'm, I didn't want to see it again. Right. But it was enough to go through the process. That's all. Yeah. I get it. All right. Well, that's what's in the news. And... There's only one of us in the room who's ever been to a bullfight. Anyway, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, uh, what's going on with the Mona Lisa? Uh, protesters not out, not outside the uh, bullfighting ring this time. But well, this will change people's minds. Yeah, it, this time in the Louvre. Uh, we'll talk about it next. It's the ride home. Just a reminder that um, here we are at the end of January. Our Valentine's dinner cruise is uh, going to happen Friday evening, February the 16th. A night out on the Three Rivers featuring a great dinner, fabulous views of the city. Fairly inexpensive mm-hmm. for you and your sweetheart or yep. your family. You Come can bring us. your kids. You can bring your neighbor, your mom, your spouse, mm-hmm. whatever. Bring a group of people uh, because we're going to have a terrific time. Last year, we did it for the first time in the winter and we thought... This is uh, crazy. Why would we want to go out on the boat in the middle of winter? It was so great. No one was cold. It was just a wonderful time. Yeah, it really was. Um, especially because a lot of us spend a lot of time inside in the winter. And so it was just a beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful evening to be out on the rivers. Wordfm.com. You'll see the banner for the Valentine's Dinner Cruise at the top of the page. We would recommend you go there. Uh, tickets are going to sell out. So come and join us. Wordfm.com. A fabulous night out uh, with views, uh, views of the city, fellowship, and fun all happening Friday evening, February 16th. Wordfm.com. John, in a previous segment, we were just talking about the activists that were surrounding the bullfighting uh, event. I'm not sure what you'd call it. Is it a ring? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Arena. In in Arena. In Mexico City, uh, different activists were at work in Paris on Sunday, and uh, they splattered the Mona Lisa with soup. Right. Now, Now, the good thing is... That it wasn't the Mona Lisa, you know, it wasn't the actual canvas because there's a a glass bit in front of it. Yeah, the Mona Lisa is behind bulletproof glass. (laughs) So (laughs) soup's not going to hurt it. No, it isn't. So climate activists, of course, uh, you hear more and more about this in the news. Uh, They battled weekend crowds at the Louvre in Paris to splash the Mona Lisa with that canned soup. Video uh, shows two women throwing a red liquid, so that would be tomato soup or gazpacho, huh? Uh, at the painting before crossing a wooden barrier, protecting it from crowds. One of the women removes her jacket to reveal a T-shirt reading, um, what? Repost. I, I, don't, I, yeah. I, I don't speak that language. A food sustainability activist group in France whose name means food response. Mm-hmm. What is more important, the second woman says to the shouting crowd, art or healthy, sustainable food? Museum workers that can then be seen rushing to block the view of the activists and the painting. 
In an emailed statement, the Louvre told uh, news media that no damage was done to the painting, which has been protected under armored glass since 2005. And thank goodness for it. Mm-hmm. Museum of Logic complaint, the statement said, although it was not clear whether this was to law enforcement officials or to the activist group. Of course, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa depicts an Italian noblewoman with a mysterious smile. It is one of the world's most famous works of art and attracts up to more than 10 million visitors to the Louvre every year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First off, I know you've seen this. I have. And? It's lovely. It's mysterious, but the the press around it, I think, sort of elevates it to a different status. You mean in the actual museum? No, in or the just world, what we all know about. Yeah, it. right. I mean, I don't want to be an art critic, but it's very it's intriguing. Um, I wouldn't say it's like it, it knocked my socks off. Okay. You know, I mean, is it small? No, it's not small. It's not it's not gigantic either. I mean, you know, it's three feet maybe, something like that. It's big enough. And you it's kind of weird, you know, because it's become so famous. Now this was a long time ago. Again, this is back in the nineteen eighties. So it was unprotected. Was it? Yes. And I saw it like on a, I saw it like on an off day. So there wasn't, and you know, of course, everything's become bigger than life now. I, there weren't like thousands of people. I mm. didn't have to. I think now you get a time ticket for it. Oh, that makes sense. I remember just walking up to it fairly close, you know, being close to it, which, of course, now, because of wackadoodles, doesn't happen. What's wrong with people? It's just everyone's making a point about something. What is wrong with people? I mean, I get it, right? I mean, so you climate activists or food activists, everyone wants to sort of, you know. Just take care of each other, right? They said agriculture is responsible for 20% of national greenhouse gas emissions. So what? And contributes greatly to the deterioration of our biodiversity and the impoverishment of soils due to the massive use of inputs. So, we so what eat, are you going to eat? Right? In a, I don't it's know. so... It's just... It's so, yeah. Well, so, so ridiculous. So then, uh, will all things have to be protected? I mean, here, you, you walk through the Carnegie Museum. There's some incredibly beautiful oh, yeah. works of art. Right. So now you're just waiting for some wackadoodle to splash a painting or glue their hand to a painting or to what? To make some political statement about X? That's where we are right now. It's just... So all beauty is eradicated in the name of political right. statements. Right, right. And political statements always can trump something beautiful? Heaven help us. I know. Anyway, thanks for being with us today. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.